I actually look forward to getting error messages when I run code. It's, it means that I failed and the code didn't run properly, but the, the error also guides in my finding a solution. Welcome back to Miss Radio, guys. This is Gabe, and I have a special edition of the podcast for you today. I talked again uh, for the third time. This is a trilogy. I spoke this morning with Castelline Tillis. Uh, she's an alumna who graduated last year from Miss, and she works in DC now. And I talked to her this morning via Zoom. We had a great conversation, and given that today is November 6th, Election Day, and she's been working on voter polling data all of the last four months or so, helping candidates out in state races. She's got a really great perspective on what we're about to see unfold today, along with what we're about to see unfold when we graduate eventually, whether that's about to happen this December or next May or in the next couple of years. Castelline uh, has been there and she is living the dream now, as it were. Anyway, here's the conversation with Castelline Tillis, Miss Alumna and Data Analysis Professional. Okay. Well, in the trilogy that are our interviews, Castelline, this is number three. Um, it might become a much longer series, all of Star Wars, who knows? We'll see. Um, what are you up to these days? What am I up to? Um, I am currently working for a data science consulting firm in D.C. Um, as a data analyst, and I do that full time, which means 40 to 60 hours of work per week. So that's my mornings, my evenings, and sometimes my weekends. So 40 to 60 hours. I don't think we put in quite that much each week at school here. Uh, well, not everybody, at least. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you were telling me just a few minutes ago that it's, you know, 40, 60 hours is still not enough to get something done that your supervisor might ask um, because of this kind of skill gap. Um, you're learning on the job. So yeah. I want to hear a little bit more about that experience. Like we, we try to learn just the most basic elements of data science here at Miss over the course of you know, half the semester. Um, compare that experience to the fire hose you're drinking from right now. Yeah, um, that's a great place to start from. So um, I did take intro to data and policy analysis with Murphy and it was a great class. And for me, this was the foundational course where I learned how to do a bit of programming in R. And I thought I, I mastered until I joined the team here at Blue Labs Analytics and I realized that I knew nothing essentially. Um, so a lot of it has been using tools that I was familiar with to perform really complicated statistical yeah, um, methods. So to run uh, predictive models, to do regressions, these were things I was familiar with, but I wasn't, I didn't have experience doing it with the sheer amount of data that we're dealing with on the job. Yeah, I mean, um, I keep seeing different situations where I wish I had those skills to analyze that kind of data, like big, thick data. I think there's a class for that at school now called thick data. Yeah, there are, in, there are more master's programs in this field because it's growing in demand. Um, but what's been difficult for me is not only just not knowing the tools. So R was just one language that we use on the job, but we also use Python. SQL is another language that I've had to learn on the job. Ruby, it just, it's just kind of thrown at you based on what project you're working on. And so, and the expectation is that you learn quickly. 
So you have about a few days to go through tutorials online, and then we need you to produce this report that we're going to give to a client. Wow. And no so problem. yeah, the first few weeks I thought, if this is what they expect of me, I can't deliver um, at this rate. But I didn't communicate that to my supervisor. Mm -hmm. uh, my method was to, to go into a dark room, huddle in a corner, and try and figure it out by myself. So I would use DataCamp, I would use Treehouse, and other um, open source kind of education platforms to teach myself these different languages and to try and execute what were really complicated tasks on my own. So that was the first few months and it was hell. And I literally worked until 10 p.m. every day, yeah, for the first few months. And then I reached out. I think we were talking about this as well offline. Um, I finally told my supervisor, I am stressed, I'm not getting sleep, and I'm not performing well. Something needs to change. Um, and I, told, I explained to him that I have a humanities background, my master's was in international policy, I didn't study computer science, I didn't study statistics, so this doesn't come naturally to me. And he said, okay, um, why don't we do this? We'll give you more support. So ever since I checked in with the supervisor um, I'm speaking of, I've had staff members come out and say like, hey, um, we hear that you're learning Python. Do you want to sit through a session with me? I'll teach you like some of the basics. Or I have example code you can use. Um, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Like every staff member has been doing that for every new project I've been on. That's and that's really, been helpful. I mean, it must feel great to have them kind of, you know, kind of coalescing around you of all people. But I guess you're, you must be worth having there for them to want to, you know, put the time in for you. Yeah, um, I even spoke to the founder because I guess he was concerned as well when he heard that I was having a terrible time transitioning yeah. into the, the industry. He said, no, like you're incredibly intelligent. And if you're not doing well, that means we're failing you. We're not providing you with support. We're not providing you with mentorship that you need to learn the analytical tools to right. do well. Um, so I think the company's done a great job making me feel as if like, I can learn to code. It's all I need is just time and resources. That's that's really good to hear that there are companies out there that do prioritize the needs of their employees as much as they prioritize the needs of clients. Um, well, you said, what is the group called? Blue? Blue Labs. B-L-U-L-A-B-S. Uh, -E and the reason for that name is to imply that we are a progressive firm. So we only do analytics for uh, democratic political campaigns. That makes sense. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you mentioned you worked on like, you were working on data for seven different campaigns over the last few months, something like that. Yeah. Um, and this is part of a team. So I'm not the sole analyst. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. <laughs> but yeah. So we have been doing analytics for um, campaigns within swing states. So these are states where the races are most competitive, where it could either go Democratic or Republican because you have equal support um, for both political parties. Um, so you have states like Ohio, Missouri, uh, West Virginia, and quite a few others. Um, I don't know how much you want to know about what we do, but I'll give you like... I mean, I, I would like to have like an overview to know, and just for anybody who listens to this, to know what, you know, these data science classes actually can lead you toward, because that's something I know that I wonder about when I'm trying to figure out how to type a code into R. You know, that's just yeah. the beginning. So I think, yeah, one thing Murphy taught us was how to run a regression. So you, you're trying to predict some outcome. And that's essentially what we do, but it's just on a different scale. Yeah. So we do what is called uh, predictive modeling, where you use past and current data to predict some future outcome. And what we try and predict is usually support for specific candidates or the likelihood that a voter would turn out for an election. Okay. And we use 
information like your past voting history, demographic information like your age, your race, whether your level of education, um, what district you live in, all of these can be predictors of that end outcome of whether you will vote or whether you will support a democratic candidate. So does Blue Labs have its own kind of predictive model that it uses or several models? I know that, you know, sites like 538 and um, things on the New York Times, like the Upshot, they have their own models that they use for these predictive mechanisms. But yeah. does Blue Labs have its own or a set of them? Uh, we actually use methods that are commonly used in the industry. So logistic regressions, we use this in the Internet Data and Policy Analysis course. Uh, we rely heavily on that because the outcomes we try and predict are often binary. So whether you will vote, whether you will not vote, whether you will support uh, candidates such and such or whether you will not. So these are often binary outcomes. So log logistic regression is one method that we use. Um, and yeah, so we primarily rely on that. So you, you mentioned West Virginia, Ohio. I mean, there's been a lot of attention on those states in the last few months. What, obviously, it's, I'm not expecting an executive summary here of everything you've been going through, but what has been, what have been some sort of key observations that you've, you've made yourself of these very important swing races? Yeah, sure. And I should give a disclaimer that these are my take on okay. what's happening. So this is not like Blue Lab's official statements um let it be known yeah <laughs> i just top line um assessments from what i gather there have been turnout of young voters at unprecedented rates so across all the seven states that you're looking at you have voters that fall within the 18 to 29 can you name those seven states just to be clear so ohio yeah sure um so ohio tennessee indiana west virginia florida arizona and Wisconsin. Gotcha. Yeah, so we're doing analytics for the progressive candidates in those respective states. Right. Um, and that entails doing polling. So we canvas voters, we collect all their responses, and then we also extract information from, again, the voter file with demographic data, et cetera. So all of that we use in some of our modeling that we do. Um, but in, mm -hmm. Oh, go ahead. I, I mean, the young voters have been a big focus in a lot of media coverage of the races. So, I mean, what are, what are the indicators that you were looking at that made that seem like it was going to be a big um, sort of difference compared to previous years? Yeah, um, so we, we've been tracking early voting across these states and we've seen that, again, voters in the 18 to 29 demo group have been showing up to the polls at unprecedented rates. So in states like Arizona, you see a 200% increase Dang. and early voting among 18 to 29 year olds as compared to the previous uh, midterm elections. And you see similar increases in Florida and Michigan. Again, young people I think are outraged. They're upset with this administration and they want change. And that's kind of driving them to the polls um, or they're casting their ballots. So I do think you're gonna see this reflected in, in the outcome of the election. Um, so I do expect that in these seven states that you'll likely see perhaps democratic candidates um, elected that will unseat Republicans that we associate with the Trump administration because right. we're infuriated with how they're dealing with um, current issues. Yeah. Are these mostly House races that you've been tracking? Uh, these are Senate races. Senate races. Okay. Yeah. So state Senate? Or... Yeah. Okay. So not so much like the Joe Manchin and, you know, like people replacing Jeff Flake. These are 
high profile names, but you guys are tracking the state level races. Yeah. Okay. And those Most. are, I mean, to be fair, those are as important, if not more important in a lot of ways, especially given the composition of the Supreme Court. So. Yeah, and these are really contentious races. So within these states, analytics can make a difference because candidates usually win by a few percentage points. Mm -hmm. So what we do is essentially we help guide some of their outreach. If we think that this particular demographic is likely to vote, we inform them that they should kind of reach out to them with messaging um, accordingly. Or if we feel as if this specific demographic is least likely to vote, they should do outreach to encourage them to get out to vote. Okay. Uh, so I do think we help to make a difference ultimately in helping more progressive candidates get into office to create policies that help us all in the end. Yeah. I mean, I've also heard this as an election in which there have been a record number of female voters, of uh, people, you know, people of color, and just people from sort of demographic groups, social groups uh, that just have not been represented very much in the past. Um, is that something you've observed as well? Yeah, um, so women of color in particular um, are one demo group that we have been trying to reach because they are least likely to turn out for uh, midterm elections. Um, and we have seen a surge of that, so a slight increase. So I do think it's all in response to what we're seeing in the current administration, that minorities, young people are infuriated because they don't feel as if they're being represented or their views are being reflected in what we see. Um, and so they want change. So that, that, you think that's kind of the crux of it? They don't see their own views being represented in our government, in the administration, et cetera. Yeah, if you look at how we've been responding to the caravan of migrants as right. this framed um, approaching the U.S. border, that's been fairly regressive and that like we don't want refugees coming to this country. And from my experience, young people and minorities generally tend to be pro-immigration. So again, if the administration is staunchly opposed to that, we would want to unseat candidates who share those anti-immigration values. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean. So today, I, I mean, today is the day when all of this is going to kind of matter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I assume your, you know, yours is a progressive um, kind of data company. So I, I assume the office environment is, everybody's probably pretty much on the same page. Yeah, um, we don't really talk about like who voted for who. Like as long as you vote, that's what matters. Yeah. But I'm pretty, sh like I'm 100% confident we're all voting Democrat. Right. <laughs> so let's zoom out from your office a little bit. Um, where, where is the office located? Are you in the Beltway or are you a little bit further removed from the yeah, action? I could tell you what street, in it. or you mean like not the physical location of the office? Oh, I just mean like, uh, well, I guess that the, you could uh, ask the question in both a you know abstract and concrete sense. Um, that is, a, you know, what I like that question though. It, do you feel like yours is kind of like the, you know, a common establishment in DC? Do you think most places? I, obviously, there are conservative and progressive think tanks and data companies. Where does yours fall? Yeah, I was gonna say I. I uh, Republican data science firms as well. So we're fighting for Democratic candidates, but there are also analytics for the other political parties as well. Um, in terms of reflecting broader views in DC, you mean? In terms of yeah, the work that we do? Yeah, that's kind of what I get at. Um, like, 
d d is DC kind of pushing toward progress or is, do you, do you see it just kind of like a push and pull? Yeah, I was gonna say one thing is I, I've noticed is that DC is a fairly blue district. Mm -hmm. Um, so even among my friend groups, we've talked about the elections with the assumption that everyone's going to vote a particular way. Um, I find that, again, in my conversations on the bus or on the train, most people are liberal or left-leaning um, in terms of their politics. So I do think what we do with the firm um, would probably be well-received. Um, yeah. yeah. So I, I've heard some discussions of granting the District of Columbia something akin to statehood, something that would allow it to be represented more fully in Congress. Um, is that something you've heard any talk about? Because given that it is a densely populated area, that it is full of mostly progressives from what it sounds like, um, that could change the balance of things in Congress, at least, you know, by a tiny bit. Is that something you've heard people talking about giving DC some representation in Congress? Um, no, this is not something that we've talked about, um, but I can bring it up among our staff. I'm sure that's something that would be of interest, like just to have a discussion around it. Yeah, it's, it comes up in, you know, a lot of different policy discussions about the way the country is kind of engineered these days as far as the electorate goes. Um, and it really has been an engineering project, especially in the sense of gerrymandering and then also the voter suppression is, are these, any, are these sorts of things, um, the sort of things that blue the blue blue labs looks at like the effects of gerrymandering the effects of um the voter suppression efforts that have been taking place unfortunately not unless it's something that campaigns specifically ask for we don't really delve into a specific topic I see. Um, and so there are clients and they are primarily interested in whether voters will support them um and if not what should they do about it um, and i think so most of our programming tends to veer towards that, not necessarily towards broader political issues. Mm -hmm. So what do, you, what do you tell a candidate when you do discover, say, uh, you know, a group of voters that they haven't reached out to but who could be potential supporters? Do you give them specific instructions on outreach or just to reach out to them? Yeah, both. So we actually test different types of messaging where uh, when we do our polling, where one group would get a Democratic message, another would get a Republican message, and one group would get no message at all. So this would be our control group. And we'll see the extent to which the messaging was effective in getting people to say they will vote for this specific candidate. Um, and depending on how effective the messaging is with different demo groups, we can recommend that they use it. So we found that young people are more receptive to this message. If you want to reach them, this is what you should do. We find that older people are receptive to this other type of messaging, so this is what you should use. So we not only recommend that they do it, but we also give them content that could help them as well. Um, that sounds very useful. Um, I, I, I hope you guys, you know, make a profit doing this. That I guess that's part of the point. Yeah, it's not only to make a profit, but the end goal is also to help the best candidates and to right. like get into office. Well, I was going to ask, yeah, I'm assuming there are probably a lot of candidates out there who do have access to Democratic National Committee funds and that do have access to fundraisers, but um, are your, is Blue, does Blue Labs offer its services to candidates that don't have a lot of resources, or is it really something that 
requires them to have a certain base level of financial support? Um, because it's expensive to do like six months of polling that we've been doing across, like we try and get representative samples. So you have to sample across an entire state. Um, it does require that the candidate have the funds to afford this type of analytics. And it's unfortunate. Well, you get what you pay for. Um, yeah. <laughs> it sounds like a high quality product. It's better than just a spot poll of like 1,171 people in one place. Like, you know, but six months worth of polling is probably a lot more valuable than one week. It sounds like. It is. And I was going to say, just this is somewhat tangential, but related, but in doing a lot of the polling, I've realized that not only is our country exceptionally divided, but we have people who feel unheard. So yeah. a lot of times when we call people in like more rural parts of Ohio, for example, we reach voters who are 60 years old and they just want to let out a lot of their frustrations. Um, and although I don't necessarily identify as a Republican, I sympathize with people who feel as if they're unemployed, their community has been overlooked, um, that they're also poor just because they're white doesn't mean that they're privileged in all, all facets of life. Again, I've gotten to understand how incredibly diverse the fabric of America is and that people have lived experiences that guide some of the decisions they make when they vote. So I don't necessarily think that people who voted for Trump are malicious and listening to them as they give some of their responses, I sympathize with them, even though I might not agree with some of their political decisions. Yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean. I've been working at the Congressman's office here in Salinas uh, since, basically the beginning of the semester and we get a lot of calls and people who walk in to the office um, from pe people who really just want to vent like you were saying yes. people who have a lot of angst just kind of charged up over the last couple of years uh, or probably a couple decades maybe their whole life um, with different issues that have become salient in the last couple of years since 2016 election yeah and I, I do think a lot of people again who supported um, the Trump administration, they thought he could help them with some of the issues that they were burdened by. So whether it be unemployment or um, job security, and they might have overlooked, I guess, the human rights aspects. Right. Um, so the responses you get from people, does it sound like they are satisfied? Does it sound like they have seen, I mean, his big thing of POTUS right now is, you know, promises made, promises kept. Do you find that that's true among the people that you have input from, or even from the polling data that you have? Um, just, I'm thinking of just top line um, responses. I find that we are still incredibly divided. You would think given how terribly the, the administration's been doing, that most people would be on the side of like critiquing the administration, but I still find that we're equally polarized. Where people have really strong opinions, they're either super supporters, or super opposers of the administration, still. So I, I don't necessarily know that he's lost his constituents. Yeah. Um, so in this, I, I, I don't, I've had trouble accepting this idea that we are in like a post-truth era. I, I don't want that to be the case. Um, so how, how much does the truth or how much do facts actually seem to matter? You talk about this polarization and it sounds to me like it doesn't really matter exactly what has happened in reality. Yeah, uh, his supporters are still behind him. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's 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 kind of what I'm getting at. It, how, how how much do you see that like fact based polling or you know these uh, 
is it really just opinions and emotions? I don't know. What I've gathered. Yeah. Um, Because even if one thing that comes up often when we ask what issues voters care most about is immigration. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes they would rehash what you would hear in the news. And sometimes it's not entirely factual um, about the family separation that occurred at the border, that we were just enforcing the law. But there are also broader discussions about us being able to amend the law if we don't think it's just. Mm -hmm. But again, if you're part of a constituent that's supporting this policy, you don't hear that part of it, that laws can be amended, laws can be changed. You just rehash. Yeah what it is that your particular, your president is telling you. Yeah. That we're only doing what we're supposed to do, they're criminals, we have to imprison them and take their children. Like, I don't know. Well. I feel like we have incomplete versions of everything that's happening and we only listen to the version that kind of echoes our own beliefs and sentiments. Like the echo chamber, yeah, there we go. Right, yeah, I mean, a lot of us are in bubbles. I'm, I'm in a bubble out here in Monterey. Uh, there are certainly conservatives in Monterey, um, and I'm, I'm actually, I'm hoping to get some conversations going between conservatives and progressives here as part of this Miss Radio project, but uh, I really, I, I don't see where anything can happen without having those conversations, though, because otherwise it's just you're lobbing salvos over what is really just a wall between people at this point. Yeah, I cannot like agree more. I think what we need now more than ever is dialogue across political lines. I mean, I think that's what listening to some of the polling um, calls did for me, where I had never really sat down and talked to someone who was staunchly Republican. And this was one opportunity to do so. Although I, I wasn't the one administering the, the poll, um, but we got a chance to monitor some of the calls. So um, I listened in on quite a few of them. And it was my... It was one of the first experiences in life where I got a chance to listen to someone who disagreed with me and I, I could only listen. Um, and it just, it gave me just a bit more perspective. Um, but I feel like that's rare, um, where most people associate with others who share the same political views. If I'm Democrat, I only have Democrat friends. If I'm a Republican, I only have Republican friends. And we kind of commiserate in these respective bubbles, but we never really cross dialogue yeah i mean we gravitate toward people who are similar to us generally um because it makes us feel good to be validated i suppose by our our social groups but i think it's like having those conversations though with, with somebody you know disagrees with you that that's an extreme level of discomfort for most people it and is. i think that it's that you know, this principle applies across a lot of different dimensions, but like getting comfortable with uncomfortable, fine, like not taking the path of least resistance um, seems to be a hard but um, kind of necessary choice these days. Yeah. So, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, I don't know how to do that well. <laughs> do, do any of us. <laughs> well, I was going to ask you, like, you you've taken a few sort of twists and turns as far as like your career goes, uh, even in the year, like how many, how many different positions have you had since you finished up at Miss? Uh, so I did the internship at the state department. And as soon as I completed that, I started in this position, um, labs. So two. <laughs> okay. And, 
but you have kind of a long-term goal and I know you you like your heart is in Haiti and yes oh that could not be more beautifully said (laughs) (laughs) and I know that that's kind of you've accepted that there are steps you may need to take to get there and it's like this this blue labs job it's certainly not the path of least resistance for you. <laughs> um, so what, I mean, what challenges do you see ahead? Like experiences that you are going to consciously decide to take um, to get yourself closer to your ultimate goal. Hey. Ultimate in terms of the goals that you've got at this point, you know, you're still young. You've got plenty of time to set even larger goals, but. You think so, not my parents. My parents are waiting for me to settle in life and to be successful. Um, but yeah, my end goal is to somehow use my skill sets and my expertise to advance development in Haiti. And that's super broad. Um, but I'm trying to figure out how to best accomplish that. Um, so I have three different life plans that converge towards this broad goal, if you don't mind me sharing them. Please, yeah. Okay, uh, so life plan one is to go on to do a PhD. So I would do one year at Blue Labs and then pursue a PhD in social data science, which is, it's a new field, uh, but it's where you can use data to inform public policy, essentially. And I would want to do that with the Haitian government to try and use development data to guide some of their programming. Um, So this is life plan one, to be an academic and a policy advisor, I suppose. Um, Life plan two would be to continue working for Blue Labs and to become a senior in this industry, to become like a senior data scientist. Um, And I would still end up advising the government, but not necessarily from an academic standpoint, but as someone who has industry experience. Mm -hmm. Um, Life plan three, did I eliminate life plan three? (laughs) Hold on. It was PhD, continuing in the private sector, Oh, life plan three, I think, I cannot recall. So there are only two. Yeah, um, I mean, I remember. Oh, wait, wait, three. Okay, oh, yeah, remember? Good. I got it. So um, I considered going the foreign policy route. So um, many have advised me to enter the foreign service, um, in which case I could potentially serve at the embassy in Haiti um, and elsewhere representing the U.S. government. Uh, but this is the path that I'm least excited about, hence why I forgot about it. <laughs> Uh, because you can't because as a foreign service officer you don't get to decide which embassy you serve at it's kind of where you're assigned to and you're at the service of the u.s government so if they need me in Myanmar, i would be posted there if they needed me in peru i would be there so there's no guarantee that i would be able to work um, in haiti and to influence policy there um well yeah yeah, it sounds like acquiring the skills that blue lab would sort of impart upon you if you stayed there would be a very a logical choice it might take a while but it sounds like it'll be um i'm not i'm not saying you must take career path two or (laughs) it sounds like either way you're gonna get closer to your goal but um i can't tell you how many times already this semester i wished my data skills were better because i i want i want to work in policy as well and i know that qualitative data can move people but what i mean do you find that this kind of these hard data sort of projects that you've been undertaking 
do people give more weight to that than they do to kind of, you know, just taking the temperature of people by talking to them? Like what, what do you find is the difference between like qualitative data analysis and quantitative these days as far as like the way it actually moves people? I can say what we do here um, at Blue Labs is mostly quantitative um, in focus. Um, where again, we're trying to predict like a binary outcome. Um, and to qualitative data, I don't even think we gather that at all. Um, is anybody most, doing that? Hmm? Uh, do, it doesn't, I'm not even sure if it's like a scientific process gathering qualitative data. I know Glenzer's teaching a class on it next semester, qualitative data analysis, but I'm not even sure what that means. Yeah, I think it's much harder to analyze. So that's, <laughs> um, I don't know that I have enough experience doing it either. Um, so in the survey work that I did last summer, we had a few qualitative like, open-ended questions uh, where we asked people what their, what words do they associate with NGOs? And That's after great. the fact, it was really hard to analyze that. And what we did in the end was a frequency analysis. Uh, so which words did they say most often? Um, but there isn't really a school of thought around how to approach qualitative data. At least you don't necessarily have tests like regressions that you can run or chi-squared tests, teeth tests. These are things that are much more useful in the quant right. um, analysis world. This is quite the journey you've taken, Castelline, from being in that position where you were in Haiti, actually, you know, getting those, you were working on that project about getting people's opinions about how NGOs work in Haiti and whether they work and whether they want them there. It's funny, this kind of, you went from the qualitative data and I, if not by conscious decision, realized that you needed the quantitative skills in order to begin actually affecting the issues that were at play there. Yeah. Um, so one thing I didn't mention, if I were to pursue a PhD, I would want to continue doing uh, survey work in Haiti. So what we did was only in one department in the south of Haiti. I would want to scale this to do a national level survey where we touch all departments and ask people the same questions, what their thoughts are of NGOs, what words they associate with these organizations, what do they think about the state, and what words they associate with the state and the institutions. Um, and I didn't feel comfortable doing something on that scale unless I had the tools to analyze the data that would come out of it. Um, so Blue Labs was an attempt to try and acquire those skills that I could then use for independent research in Haiti. Um, and some, some of the questions will be qualitative in nature, but also quantitative as well. Right. Uh, mixed methods research is what I would hope to do. These must have all been difficult decisions to make as far as like where to spend your time and invest yourself. Um, I guess, you know, to close things out, how, how do you know when to follow those instincts? Like, I, cause I, I have a lot of ideas about what might be good choices. <laughs> and I'm sure a lot of st students here do, um, but I've been plagued by indecision my whole life. Um, analysis paralysis. What, what has allowed you to like be decisive as a professional? Um, is it instinct? Is it, is it just hard analysis? What is it? A combination of things. Um, I predict the outcome based on decisions I make. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> I do a regression <laughs> with each. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I wish. Um, if, if only it were that way. easy. 
I think it's usually a product of circumstance. So after completing the internship at the State Department, um, there was the hiring freeze and I couldn't continue in that capacity. Um, so I actually thought I would be able to work at the Haiti office as a political analyst, but they weren't hiring. So I, I considered other options. And as you would know, development is super competitive um, in DC, the World Bank and the IDB, they're only looking for interns, mm. but it seems as if they rarely hire entry-level associates. So I thought I would go private sector, acquire skill sets, um, and still continue towards this broader goal of like helping Haiti. And so it was a circumstance. I couldn't find work in the industries that I initially thought um, I had wanted to work in, and um, I found work with Blue Labs, and it's been an incredible four months. And you, um, you could see yourself staying there for at least a year to continue building those skills. Yeah, because I have learned four programming languages since I've been four here. Four months. Yes. <laughs> That's incredible. And I get paid to learn and to perform. Like it's, it's, it's incredible. Because <laughs> that sounds like the dream. Yeah. Um, so I do think it's, a, it's been a great experience. And although it's been a difficult one, um, it's been worthwhile. I feel as if my skill level has increased exponentially since I began working here. And some of my colleagues have even told me, like, you're doing great work. Um, not that I was doing poorly before. Yeah. Well, it sounded like you had the self-awareness to know that you needed to reach out and have that conversation with your supervisor. Um, and I think that's just a, that is a takeaway for anybody listening to this. Like, if you need help, just ask for it. Um, if you're around people, like I think here at Miss, we're surrounded by people who are mostly collaborative, who want to lift up the people around them in general, because that's just the kind of self-selecting group we've got. Um, yeah. And it sounds like you're in a similar environment there, which is, that gives me hope. Yeah, I was gonna say, we also have a collaborative workspace here um, where we have an open office uh, setting so no one really has a cubicle where they're like partitioned Perfect. off um, you can see everyone even the the founder of the organization sits at the same table as I do just like across from me wow. so everyone is accessible and they're there to help and I I cowered it away from that before because I thought I had to be a lone wolf and kind of figure life out by myself and acquire these skills by myself but that's not uh, always the case so to reach out for help that this is my first salary job so people not that they expect me to fail but there's room to fail to make mistakes to grow mm. they know it's my first job out of grad school um and that it'll be a learning experience initially more than anything yeah failing is part of i mean in the end succeeding i guess yeah and then one thing sorry if i may say is that i actually look forward to getting error messages when i run code it's it means that i failed and the code didn't run properly but the error also guides in my finding a solution. So I get to diagnose what's wrong, I correct it, and it's the most satisfying thing ever. So I do think I've learned to accept failure as something that propels me towards success. Like I now live for error messages. Like it's just. <laughs> I can't think of a better way to draw this conversation to a close than with that. <laughs> Castellin, thank you so much. Um, with any luck, this trilogy will become, like I said, a Star Wars like nonology. I guess that's like nine movies. We'll see. Um, you've got a long career ahead of you, so hopefully I do too. Making podcasts. Yeah, same. Okay. <laughs>
Thanks, Castellin. That was great. I am so glad I get to talk to you on a regular basis. You are a wonderful resource for me and all students here at Miss. Best of luck in the next few months and next couple years of your career. We will be in touch. And I mean it. We'll be in touch. Hopefully this trilogy will expand just like the Star Wars series. <laughs> if you're tired of that joke, you can check out our other episodes with Castellin. There are two more. You can find those here on Anchor or Spotify. They're all available. And if you know of a Miss alum or alumna that you would like to hear from, uh, please let me know. I would be happy to get their perspective and get some insights. So thanks for tuning in. We'll be back soon with more episodes of Miss Radio.